Okay, so <clears throat> we've been talking about the Four Noble Truths, and uh, Four Noble Truths are all of, the, of development, the, the basic teaching of the Buddha. He taught, what did the Buddha teach? Suffering in the end of suffering. Suffering in the end of suffering. Right. Yeah. The first truth that he taught about, thought often called the truth of suffering, is that unpleasantness in life is of two kinds. That which is physical in origin, which we would call pain, and that which is mental sort of in origin, which we might call suffering. And basically the first truth is pain is inevitable, but suffering, including the suffering associated with pain, is entirely optional. And the second truth is that the truth of the cause of suffering the cause of that mental anguish, including that associated with pain, is. You know, like the answer to thirst. What? Thirst? Craving. It's craving in the form of desire and aversion. And uh, the part of that he encourages you to discover for yourself that when you can, when you are suffering and when you can locate the, the craving, the desire, the aversion, the non acceptance that is behind your suffering, if you can let go of that even for just a moment, you can demonstrate to yourself uh, the fact that that is indeed what is the cause of your suffering. The third truth is that the permanent cessation of suffering is a result of the permanent cessation of craving, but it further requires you to understand that the only way to bring about the permanent cessation of craving is to eliminate its root cause. Uh, you can intentionally let go of craving for short periods of time. That's all. It's very hard to do and doesn't last long. If you want to be permanently free of craving and therefore permanently free of suffering, you have to eliminate its root cause. Its root cause is ignorance and delusion. And uh, that's overcome through insight leading to wisdom. And the fourth truth of the Four Noble Truths is what's called the Eightfold Path. It is the, the path of eight parts that leads to, if you practice it, will lead to the elimination of ignorance and delusion, the permanent cessation of craving, and the permanent cessation of suffering. So that's why the Buddha always said, all I teach is suffering and the end of suffering. But along with the end of suffering, as a bonus, you get wisdom, you get compassion, life has a kind of meaning that uh, it otherwise doesn't have. So, uh, suffering and the end of suffering, but with bonuses at the end. <laughs> it helps to understand that that part of what the Buddha realized is that suffering and ultimate bliss are just really two ends of the continuum. The, the less suffering, the more happiness. And so the complete absence of suffering is the ultimate bliss that a person is capable of. So now we're up to the point of discussing the Eightfold Path that gets us to this place of the insight, the wisdom that eliminates ignorance and delusion. And I believe the last few evenings with Jordan and with Shelley. Jessica. Oh, Heidi behind Tucker. Heidi <laughs> <laughs> <Hiding> behind Tucker. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, uh, Jessica, too. You, uh, and Jessica, too, yes, absolutely. Um, everything I hear about, about the classes that you do, they're so good, I wish I could be here. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, I presume that you've enumerated the Eightfold Path? Briefly. Briefly. And you've identified these three main divisions, the three pillars of the Buddhist practice. Okay. 
I'll just reiterate to remind you, because I don't, I don't want anybody to be, you know, want this stuff to just roll off the tip of your tongue and the top of your mind. Okay. So there is, first of all, there is wisdom, which is right view and right understanding. Um, these, this is an intellectual understanding to begin with uh, of the truth. That stands in opposition to the illusion that we dwell in that causes all of our problems. And also an understanding of how it affects our, our worldview, our, our day by day, moment by moment view of reality, and how that can be changed. And so that's, that's the that's wisdom one. Okay. Wisdom, the same wisdom returns at the end of the path. We call that wisdom two. And that's where it's no longer intellectual. As a result of practicing the path, you've achieved these as, as a direct realization, and it has led to the end of your ignorance. You have achieved insight, you've achieved awakening, and uh, ignorance and delusion have been overcome. So it's the it's the same. There's three pillars. It's the same one, but it just comes in two versions. At the beginning, it's it's more intellectual. At the end, it's deeply experiential. Second pillar is that of uh, sila, uh, of virtue, uh, very similar to morality and ethics, but it's different, and that is. Uh, that's right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And then the third pillar is meditation. It's right effort, right uh, concentration, or right samadhi, and right mindfulness, or right sati. And you need, you need all of these in order to accomplish the goal. So that's what the Eightfold Path is about. And, and that's just to remind, you, to remind yourself again, wisdom involves right understanding and right view. Virtue involves right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And right meditation involves, uh, or right pillar of meditation involves right effort, right concentration, and right mindfulness. So those are the eight. And I believe you've already talked a bit about right understanding and right view, but perhaps in kind of preliminary way, right? And actually, I would like, rather than being totally sequential on this, I, I would like for us to um, explore these. I mean, we can focus on one or two at a time. But I'd like us to also explore how they interconnect with the others. Because these eight, they're not, they're not sequential steps. They're not where you do one, number one, and then you move on to number two, and so forth. They are, they're more like, they're braided together, and you develop them all simultaneously. Each supports the other. Uh, so that as, as you, uh, as your practice of any one of them uh, advances, uh, your practice of all of them, it, it, it empowers and enables your practice of all of the others to advance as well. And so you're really working on them all simultaneously. Right, right understanding, uh, that's mostly what our Dharma talks are about, or the books that you might read. No lectures, recordings, and things like that. Um, and, and although we're doing this in the format of the Buddha Dhamma, the Buddha's teaching, it really is the wisdom of the ages of all traditions. Uh, stated 
differently in every tradition, but it's still it's it's still trying to cultivate an understanding of the same ultimate truth, regardless of what kind of terms we use them for. Uh, Buddhism, the Buddha Dharma, I should say. Uh, Buddhism is a religion, and the Buddha taught Buddha Dharma. Buddha Dharma literally means the truth of the awakened one. And the Buddha wasn't very big on religions. He didn't start one. After he died, people took what he taught and made it into Buddhist religions. And I've always found the Buddha Dharma far more interesting and useful than Buddhist religions. Um, but the Buddha Dharma, of course, all the Buddhist religions, Tibetan Buddhism, Zen Buddhism, all the other Buddhist religions, are based on Buddha Dharma, so they're totally compatible with Buddhist religions, but they're also totally compatible with all other religions, totally compatible with Judaism, Christianity, Islam, uh, shamanic religions, you name it. Uh, with regard to <coughs> shamanic religions, so-called Tibetan Buddhism is actually a marriage of shamanic and Buddhist uh, practices. Um, various forms of Chinese Buddhism as a religion uh, involve major elements of Taoism and Confucianism. Zen involves uh, uh, elements of Shintoism. So the Buddha Dharma is totally compatible with all truth-seeking paths and paths that are designed to lead people to ultimate realization. So to be a follower of the Buddha Dharma doesn't exclude you from being uh, a Hindu or a Vedantist or a Christian or anything else. It will lead you to perhaps fine-tune, modify some of the terminology that you're used to using in those uh, in those particular belief systems. And, and that becomes easier and easier to do as you as the truth that they're all approaching becomes clearer that the apparent differences begin to disappear pretty much on their own. So the Buddha Dhamma though, rather than launching us into a lot of complex doctrine and even dogma, builds upon very simple premises that everyone can agree on. And it asks the, asks the practitioner of this path to verify and validate these things for him or herself through through practice, through actual experience, uh, through application in the world in daily life. But it is, the, the right understanding does spell out for us as clearly as possible the nature of the delusion that we're trapped in. And how, how we need to, the kind of work we need to do on ourselves in order to free ourselves from that trap. So everybody knows what the delusion is, right? Don't need to identify the delusion that we're trapped in. It can be put in a number of different ways. And then one of the things that's good about the fact that it can be stated in a number of different ways is that by stating it in a number of different ways, it helps helps us make clear, you know. Uh, I mean, basically the delusion is we think we know the way things are, but they really aren't that way. And that's the essence of delusion, right? You think things are one way, but they're not. We also call it ignorance because um, 
Well, this is, delusion is a kind of uh, uh, ignorance. It's a not knowing how things really are. Therefore, you believe things are a different way. There's also ignorance in that what we discover is that we spend all of our time ignoring the truth, even though it's right there in front of us. It actually keeps getting shoved in our face all the time. Uh, so it's, it, ignorance is, uh, you could also say it's, it, it's ignoring this. <laughs> yeah. When you keep doing the same thing and expecting a different result. <laughs> yeah. Another way of putting it is emptiness, which isn't really saying the same thing. It's saying that that things are not really the way they appear to us to be. That's what the, you hear the word emptiness, and you will if you you study this dharma at all. You're going to over and over again encounter term emptiness. It means that all phenomena, without exception, absolutely all phenomena, and your mind's going to hold on to a few exceptions, but <laughs> with no exceptions, all phenomena are empty of being, of actually being the way they appear to us to be. We have to elaborate on that because otherwise we're left, you know, uh, this is all an illusion, but if it is, what's real and how come it seems so real to me? Um, One thing that things are, one way in which things are empty is that, or phenomena are empty, is that phenomena appear to consist of things interacting with each other. And as the sixth patriarch of Zen said, ultimately there are no things. kind of runs counter to our ordinary experience, doesn't it? I'm a thing, holding a thing in my thing hand, and it brings some thing hot water, slides down my gullet thing through my stomach thing. <laughs> but it's not really that way. Uh, the Buddha discussed this as Anicca, which usually gets translated as impermanence, and impermanence gets misunderstood as things don't last. And so people don't appreciate that, especially modern people. <coughs> modern people hear somebody say, everything's impermanent, things don't last. The, answer, the, the reaction is, yeah, so. <laughs> right? The sun's going to burn out someday. Everything changes. Mountains rise, mountains disappear, oceans dry up. We all know that. So, that things change is no big deal. It's not, not worthy of, uh, it, it, it's not worthy of a teaching like the Buddha Dharma. What Anicca means is that there is only change. And that's also what there are no things mean. There's only change. There is only process. And some of you may find that a familiar modern concept, process philosophy, that there are no things. There is only process. There is only flux. <coughs> and what appear to be things the thingness that we see is something that our mind projects onto states of flux that the mind is capable of grasping. The same way that we can look at a wave on the ocean and say, oh, look at that wave. 
anybody who knows anything about waves knows that the wave as it moves from here to here is not made of the same water, right? The water goes up, and then it goes back down. And it's the mm -hmm. same water and it doesn't move. And over here, when it looks like the wave has moved, the water in front of that bunch of water, it also goes up. And then as it goes down, this other water goes up. And so this is basically what our minds do, is it takes a continual process with no thingness to it, and it projects thingness onto it. Sees things as entities. And so everything that appears like a thing is empty of thingness from its own side. It's only a projection of your mind. And that's, that's just the beginning of it. But we could look at that a little more. This kind of emptiness. Because it's not a, it's not a foreign idea to us. We may not have ever connected the dots. But we all see certain very simple things sorry, in, in a similar way. So, you know, all of you pretty well see this in the same way. Although, if we could really get inside each other's heads, we would find some differences. There's some people in here that would be colorblind and they won't see it the way other people are. Uh, but even more than that, there's all kinds of subtleties. Some people will see this as beautiful. Some people see it as relatively drab and plain. Somebody else might even see it as ugly. But it's a simple thing. And we can recognize that even simple things appear differently to different people. This looks very different to a caterpillar. <laughs> or a bird. Or a dog. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's consider more complex things. Like people. It, do any two people see a particular individual the same way? Absolutely not. And we never question that, do we? We know the truth of that. We learned that a long time ago. The person that you think is the most obnoxious jerk actually have people that think he's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> the people that you find disgusting, somebody else loves. So, Things are empty of, even in their thingness, these things are empty of having a particular nature that they appear to us to be. This is true of everything in the world, absolutely everything about the world. It's not a world of things, it's a world of continuous flux. And even as your mind isolates particular parts of that flux, and holds it there as, as if it were some kind of real object, any two minds are going to see it very differently. So the nature of the perception is going to be just as empty. This is also true of ourselves. You think you are, I, I'm me always been me, right? And I probably always will be, although I might cease to exist sometime in the future. I hope not. Maybe somebody can tell me some way that I'll continue to be after this body dies. That's the self that we cling to. You know, everyone knows they're going to die. Everyone does their best to ignore that fact. 
a lot of people go to great lengths to try to reassure, reassure themselves in one way or another that maybe they won't die. And to the degree that any of us is aware of it, some more so than others, death haunts us. And the older we get, and the closer we get to its inevitability, the more it haunts us. We may not consciously think about it. But it's always there in the back of our mind, niggling away, affecting us in different ways. This is one this is one source of suffering that we all experience. The inevitability of death. It's steadily increasing imminence the death and the loss of the people that are close to us, that we care about. But there's actually a deeper source of our inner discomfort uh, that is even less acknowledged. <coughs> and that's the fact that everyone, to some degree, knows, although they may do their best to hide from this, but I think every human being deep down inside already knows that the thing that they think they are is an illusion. That the self that they cling to doesn't even exist now. In other words, you think it's bad that you're going to die? No, it's a lot worse than that. You, as the self that might die, the self that might die doesn't even exist now. And what were you? Now, that, the interesting effect that has on us as human beings is that we cling even more strongly to our illusions. And now, when you see yourself as real, what does it mean to be a self? What? Separate. Separate, yeah. That's right. The whole, the very concept of self has only has meaning if you take the universe, reality, whatever you want to call it, and divide it into two parts, self and other. That's, that's where self derives its meaning from separation. And so, when you believe in yourself, you've condemned yourself to separation anxiety. <laughs> um, if, uh, so, we our delusion is that we are a separate self in a world of separate objects. And the self just wants to be happy. Just wants not to suffer. Right? Isn't that who you are and what you are? Just this simple self who would like not to suffer, would just like to be happy. Maybe I'm mistaken, there's somebody in here that would like to suffer, rather not be happy. The other part of our delusion, once we've got it fixed in our mind, I'm a separate self in this world of not-self. The other part of our delusion is that my happiness depends upon what I get from not-self. And my suffering is a result of what happens to this self. So the world gives me things and it makes me happy. It takes things away and makes me unhappy. It does things to me and I hurt. And it stops doing those things to me and I feel better. So we believe that we're separate. And we believe that the happiness and the unhappiness that we want 
comes from outside of ourselves. I'll just point out to you that believing yourself and wanting, believing yourself in a world that's not self, and wanting to be happy, those are two separate things. So, happiness and, and suffering are one problem that gets compounded, hugely complicated, actually made totally intractable when we have the thought, I am separate and my happiness and my suffering depends on what happens to me. And that's our basic, that's the basic delusion that we're caught in. So from that, we can simply say, okay, if that's the delusion, then the truth that we seek must be the opposite of that, right? And, and it is. The truth is, and once again, this is just an intellectual understanding of what's important is when you deeply realize it, as the total depths of your being realize that there is no separate self. That the self that you think you are is process, and no part of the process is separate from any other part. Everything is interconnected, everything is interdependent, everything is interpenetrating. There is no separate self. That's that's one part of the truth that needs to be realized. Of course, to realize that fully, you not only have to give up the separateness of yourself, you have to give up the view of separateness of everything else, that you live in a world of separate things. If there is anything that you can dissociate yourself from and say, say, that is other, that's not me. The other truth that lies on, on the other side of this delusion is that your happiness and your suffering come from outside of you. This really goes back to the first and second noble truths that pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. Suffering is caused by craving. What is craving about? Craving is all about thinking that that your happiness comes from outside of yourself. If I only had this, I would be happy. Or if only this would go away, I wouldn't suffer anymore. That's, that's the essence of the mistaken thinking that we have. When we said that suffering is optional, that's rooted in the realization that the mind makes us suffering, suffer. The mind makes us suffer by craving things to be different than they are. Because the mind thinks that if only, if only I had this, if only that were different, I would, I would not suffer. That I would be happy that I would live a And that is the total illusion. Because when the mind craves that things are different, that, not only is that the cause of suffering, that is suffering. That's the essence of suffering. The word that we translate into English as suffering, dukkha, it probably could be more adequately translated as unsatisfactoriness or dissatisfaction. And if you think about it, does that make sense? That Suffering is an ex what we call suffering in English is an extreme form of dissatisfaction, but it's fundamentally the same. What's mildly unsatisfying is only different in degree from what's extremely unsatisfactory to the point of, of dread and horror. Would you agree with that? So if if, if the synonym that we could apply to suffering is 
dissatisfaction, unsatisfactoriness or dissatisfaction. What is craving? Craving is wanting something to be different than it is. Wanting to have something you don't or wanting something you do have to go away, right? So what we really realize is that to crave is to suffer. I mean, it's, we say craving is the cause of suffering, and that does make sense, and it's a very practical way of putting it. But when we look deeply enough, we find that there's an identity there. Craving is, I'd say, dissatisfaction. Craving is suffering. And so we take this illusion that we are separate in the world of others, and we take, come, take and add to that the illusion that my suffering and my happiness are dependent upon the interaction between self and other. And now we have a recipe that keeps us in varying degrees of, of suffering, and it makes all of our happiness and joy transient. They just, they simply can't last. Certainly not in a world where everything is constantly in flux. So the truth is, and I'm sure you've heard this before, and it could have been in any of many different traditions, is that happiness comes from within. And we make our own suffering. And so that's the that's the basic delusion that we're trapped in. And our basic ignorance is we keep ignoring the evidence that's in front of us all the time. This is indeed the cause of the problem. So when the Buddha taught this, he said that there are three characteristics that define human existence. These are impermanence, no self, and suffering. And until we realize the truth of these and how they interact with each other, we're condemned to continue as we have and things are not going to get any better. They may temporarily get better, but then they'll get worse. They are the truth that there is only change. There is only flux. The truth that, that there is no permanent abiding self. Not only in your inner self, but there's no permanent abiding self in any other phenomena as well. There's no thing. And the truth of suffering is that as long as you continue to ignore those two facts, you're going to suffer. <clears throat> so that's the three characteristics of existence. Impermanence or flux, selflessness, and the suffering that comes from clinging to impermanent, selfless things. That's also what the term emptiness is talking about. You see they're all connected? Mm -hmm. Do you have any questions or comments at this point? Yeah. What is the difference between right view and right understanding? The difference between right view and right understanding? <laughs> Uh, right understanding is the intellectual understanding of the whole construct. So it's understanding the nature of ignorance, it's understanding the three characteristics, uh, it's understanding karma and causality, which we haven't addressed yet. Uh, but these are all intellectual understanding. Right view is how do you apply that understanding? Wrong view is the way we ordinarily see things. You and me are separate. If I get what I want, I'm happy. So when we apply that in daily, when we apply that kind of thinking in daily life, and we're practicing wrong view, right view is the practice of uh, applying this understanding to 
seeing things in a different way. So with right view, I see you and the relationship between you and I in a totally different perspective. And uh, right view is a practice. As a matter of fact, everything except right understanding could be regarded as a practice. Right view is sort of the transition from purely intellectual, even philosophical understanding to uh, when we get to uh, virtue and meditation, that's pure practice, and right view is kind of the transition between them. The other way to think of it is the application of understanding is, is right view. Yes? So, <clears throat> something I have seen in my own path and, and now on with students is that this transition from wrong view towards right view is this succession of like slightly less wrong views than yeah. the previous one. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but up, up, to, up to a certain point, and at the point that's called stream entry, then there's a dramatic shift. It's like you've been inching closer and closer to right view, and then something shifts, and then it's much, much clearer. But there's all these incremental stages. And of course, there's still more incremental change after that transition. But one of the things that marks that transition is, is that things become much clearer. But yeah. Um, and it's very situation dependent because I can view others from the point of view of selfishness or I can view others from the point of view of loving kindness and compassion. One is wrong view, one is right view. What I'm going to find uh, as this incremental change happens, it doesn't happen across the board. I view this person, my relationship with them one way, but this other person, you know, it just didn't even happen here. <laughs> and there's going to be those in between. Yeah. Is there anything I can do to speed up those incremental changes? <laughs> well, there are the there are the practices. Right? The, the practice of loving kindness and compassion uh, is supported by doing loving kindness meditation. But it also requires that you be mindful in your daily life. So you have to catch yourself in the act of wrong view in order to try to convert wrong view to right view. So that's why I say all of these things are intertwined. So there's no one thing you can do to speed it up. But if you practice all, all parts of the Eightfold Path simultaneously to the best of your ability, then, then they have a mutually reinforcing effect that is going to speed it up. If, you, if you're practicing seven well but are slack on one, that's going to definitely slow you down. That makes sense. So, rather than there being one thing that you can do to speed it up, it's doing practicing all eight uh, parts of the path is the best thing you can do to speed it up. Yeah. When you say journal. Uh, all of the features of the past. That sounds pretty. It sounds pretty vague, and I, I can't remember to do two things at once. Yeah. <laughs> and so I've been, I've been thinking more recently by coming up with specific things that I can do that are a little bit outside of my norm. Maybe smiling more at people. Just making an absolute effort. Do things differently and increase yeah. my my awareness, or at least my sociability, yeah. <laughs> fake, fake or not. Um, smiling more and waving people in front of me if they were to pull in front of me in my car. And oh, sure, come on in. So that would count, wouldn't it? Absolutely, that's a very good, very important practice. You know, that is. <clears throat> What, what you're doing there is you're, is you're, you're practicing uh, thinking and acting as though you already had more wisdom than you do. And that's a very important Smile. Thank people. Uh, you know, in terms of practicing right view, 
whatever you find yourself becoming angry at somebody else, what you need to do is to try to remember the, the truth that this other person, uh, they just want to be happy. Uh, even if they're doing something that hurts you, they're not doing it out of malice towards you. They're just trying to make themselves happy. Well, even if they're doing it out of malice towards you, it's because somehow they think it's going to make them happy. So they're just like you. They just want to be happy. They just want to not suffer. And they're ignorant. They don't realize that what they're doing is actually going to make their problem worse. If you can see that in another person, then that's going to help you. And, and that's the kind of thing you want to do. So be as nice to people as you can. And be aware. Try to catch yourself whenever you're doing things. You know, that, that is easier said than done. Nobody said that this was easy. <laughs> it's not. But if you understand it clearly, it, it, you can do it, and it doesn't take forever. One of the things I really don't like about religious Buddhism is in various Buddhist religions, they're going to tell you that it might take you 10,000 lifetimes to succeed at this, and uh, this other kind of concept. One of the things that made the Buddha's teaching unique, when he was alive and walking around doing the teaching, there were already lots of people saying, well, you can become enlightened, awakened, liberated, you know, put whatever label you want and say, it's just going to happen sometime in the future. It's going to happen after you die. And, and the one thing that the Buddha said, and it got lost in the Buddhist religion, is he said, in this lifetime. Everybody can do this in this <laughs> lifetime. And he tried to spell it out as clearly as he could. To the degree that you misunderstand the teaching, it will delay your succeeding in this. This is a right understanding, which we're going to be talking more about, is really important. Part of right understanding is the Eightfold Path. It's the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. So, to practice right understanding, you have to remember what all eight parts of the Eightfold Path are. Initially, you can simplify it into, into smaller things. But you need to learn it and remember it. Because that's, that's how you can apply it. I, and then nobody can remember to practice these things until they've trained your mind. Our minds don't work that way. When you sit down to meditate, the very first time you sit down to meditate, you discover how unruly your mind is. And one of the things that you discover very quickly is how little time it takes to totally forget what you're doing, right? And that's what happens. You wake up in the morning and say, okay, I'm going to practice this eightfold path today. You know, and that's at seven o'clock. By eight, 37, you've totally forgot it. You may not think of it again until 7 p.m. You have to train your mind. And so that's what the meditation is about. You have to learn to have awareness. That's what mindfulness is, mindfulness is about. You have, to, you have to do all of these things simultaneously. And you have to accept that you're, you're going to be limited by the degree of mastery that you have of all of them. So you've got to keep working on them all at once. So I'm I'm looking for I'm looking for shortcuts to see the trickery. Um, um, both they want. Yeah, that's right. Anybody who wants can go bell ring. Yes. My first idea is um, this, this this rather cool idea that's vague and difficult to, to sustain that we are all connected. Yep. I keep forgetting. So for deceit and trickery, I, I figure it's really easier just to create the connections and uh, and that way they're they're much more obvious to me Great. so if I feel myself disconnected from you, you know you're, you're not from around here are you uh, <laughs> then, then uh, if I you know try and and include this person in my life or, or this thing it, that connectivity that's 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 kind of helpful um, That's that's just that's just one of the things that I was thinking I could do. Um, I had a prof once who 
came into the room, first day of class, said, okay, let me, let me make this very clear. Right now, every one of you in this class has an A. Everybody throws their pencils and papers in the air. We're just delirious. This guy's obviously off his nut. And, and, uh, and you know, we're going to take full advantage of that. And, <laughs> and then he says, now, all you have to do is keep it. Yep, that's a good strategy. Every morning you wake up, you're a fully awakened Buddha. Now you have to just keep from wrecking. Yeah. I figure it's going to be easier to just wake up and, and not botch any of the eight. And, you know, that's, that's it. I, I start out with the eight, and where then I find deficit by the end of the day, oh, well, is this going to be on the exam? Yeah. Well, you know, all of these different strategies are good. I mean, if, if this is what you mean by deceit and trickery, then That's everybody needs to engage as much deceit and trickery. <laughs> the only thing that is really important is you, you've got to not get attached to any of these strategies. That's the very important thing. But there are many of them. And that's what you'll find when you look at all these different paths. I mean, the basic path is not different. It's the different strategies. It's the different versions of deceit and trickery that we use to try to get there quicker. And your biggest downfall is when you get attached to a couple of strategies and you mistake the, 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 the strategy for the truth that you're pursuing. So that's what you have to watch out for. You know, a big part of the... If we look at virtue, and I don't have time to go into that, I have to wait until the week after next. Or some other such time. But... You could think of virtue, and we've talked about this, as fake it till you make it. Practicing virtue is actually behaving as though you're already enlightened. That's a, that's, that's a strategy. That particular strategy has been taken to its most refined form in tantric Buddhism. Not only, it's, it's, uh, it goes beyond faking it till you make it through practicing the precepts, to trying to convince yourself that you're already a Buddha. And, and, and it works, although it's very dangerous. You either become a Buddha or you become psychotic. So it's about a coin toss with that. So you should be about a what? A coin toss? <laughs> well, a coin toss. You're going to go. But... With all of these things, what's going to make you psychotic is you get attached to the strategy and you lose sight of that's all it is. It's just a strategy to, to get you there. So. so I have lots of strategies to offer you too, but you can think of your own. And the thing is that as you come to know your own mind better, you're going to know which strategies are going to work best for you. Which, which of the strategies that somebody else like myself offers you. And of course, you're going, to, you're going to come up with your own strategy. Maybe even some of the strategies you come up will be, I don't know, odds are against this, but it could be something nobody else has ever thought of before. Uh -huh. You'll have to go and tell everybody else this wonderful new strategy that you found for fitting it. But, well, first what we need to focus on is understanding really clearly where we want to get to and where we are. And you need to know both of those. If you just know where you want to get to but you don't know where you are, somebody landed me on this planet, I've heard of the city of New York, I want to get there, but I have no idea where I am. What are my chances? <laughs> <laughs> and vice versa. You have to know where you want to get to, and you have to know where you are. And then, <coughs> then, if you if you're really fortunate, you have some guidance about how you get from here to there. Yeah. Then we're going to have to talk about how to decide where we are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not tonight necessarily, but. Yeah. But no, that's a really important part of it. Um, 
in a sense, you want to get from being lost in delusion to being a fully, lost in delusion and suffering to being a fully awakened being, living a, a blissful, meaningful life. If you want to get from here to there, um, you have to you have to understand the nature of the delusion that you're caught in, and the nature of the suffering that, that you're embedded in. And that's that's really important. You have to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Nobody else can do it for you. But, but you didn't make those bootstraps. But you were saying on how to determine where you are, how to know that. Yeah. You have to identify your own delusion. You have to identify your own delusion. And, and, and not just generic sense. You have to identify specifically your own delusion. Your version. Your own particular version. And where it has its hooks in you. This can be done. Of course. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking that it also changes. What's that? I'm thinking it also changes. Well, of course it does. Yeah. 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 As you go along, it, it changes. And also, as you go along, you'll discover that you're still trapped by things that you thought you had left behind long, long ago. Oh, yeah. It was interesting you say the way, the way that these delusions have their hooks in you. We are attached to our delusions. Because they support our view of ourselves. That's mostly, that, that's a really big part of our attachment to them. Uh, one of the things that gave me a lot of insight many years ago was when I realized that many people with chronic pain were so attached to their pain that they would find all kinds of ways to resist. On the one hand, they're begging medicine or anybody or whatever to help them overcome their chronic pain. But when you examine more closely, they're actually at the same time doing everything they can to hold on to their pain and prevent those interventions from working. Because they had reached a point where their pain was so much a part of their identity, of who they were, and their relationship to other people, and their relationship to the world, that they would be lost without it. Deep yeah. down, part of them was so afraid of losing their pain that it kept sabotaging the effort to overcome. And when I saw and understood that, I mean, this this all had to do with my previous incarnation as a physiologist and teacher and so forth. Physical Medicine Research Foundation and stuff like that. But. I was also a practicing Buddhist at that time. And I did I realized this this was an encapsulation of the human condition. We are all we're all attached to our suffering, even while we're busy trying to get out of it. We're attached to it. And why are we attached to it? Because it's an important part of our identity, our sense of self. We don't want to lose our sense of self. And just to come to the point where we really Re, just to come to the point where you really understand that losing your attachment to self, you aren't really losing anything. And it's not really a bad thing. It's the best thing that could ever happen to you. Because as long as you don't realize that, then unconsciously you're going to be sabotaging yourself because you're going to keep clinging to your suffering because it's part of how you cling to the illusion of your separate selfhood. And what to do without it. The, the thing to do is, what you do without the illusion of your selfhood is the same thing you do when somebody's removed a hundred pound weight from your shoulders. You, you jump up and down. <laughs> you heave a big sigh. <laughs> You don't miss it. <laughs> yes. well, up to that moment, you go on, and even right up to the last moment, there's this fear of <coughs> lose something. I'm going to miss it. 
It's like dying. And then it's gone. It's, oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs>